0: with fancy cars, we're not real lavish and you know, wearing lots of jewelry and makeup and all this other things. We, you know, we don't like to go out for lavish meals. I mean, we think that a lavish meal is if you go someplace where they have linen, napkins and tablecloths, but only if you have a coupon. And then, you know, we th- lavish displays are just not part of what a lot of us do. It's just not part of our culture. But I found that extravagance uh, is often a matter of relativity, right? Um, I mean, people don't like extravagant displays even of emotions. I mean, for a lot of us, nodding hello is about as close as we want to get to each other, right? Or sometimes a safe distance of a handshake is pretty good. And we're completely freaked out by people who like to hug or pat us on the back, even, the, you know, kind of the man hug thing. It's like, hey you, you. I'm kind of a genetic freak in that way, but I kind of like hugging. It's okay. So Jesus, however, is very much in favor of and promotes extravagant displays of affection and love. And that's what we find in John chapter 12, verses 1 uh, through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those uh, reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about uh, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped it with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me with you. So we're getting closer to the end of this season of Lent. In fact, next Sunday we'll celebrate Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Holy Week. And then each day during Holy Week we kind of think of the events that took place this last week of Jesus' life that kind of led to the Passover meal, which we celebrate on Monday, Thursday, and then the Good Friday Jesus um, arrest and punishment and uh, death on the cross and burial, and then eventually, in two weeks from today, celebrating uh, Easter. And this particular passage of Scripture in uh, John chapter 12 kind of marks the same turn. In fact, it takes us almost exactly to the same place where we are today, right? Six days before Passover, Jesus was in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem, and, and um, the, these friends of His, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, decided to have a, a dinner party in His honor. And they invited a bunch of people, apparently. We can assume that Judas wasn't the only disciple who was invited, although Jesus might have liked to keep his eye on him all the time. Uh, But maybe all of the disciples were there, and some other people as well, and all of the family of Lazarus and Mary and Martha were kind of serving the roles that we learn that they served always. And every story about them, they kind of are doing the same thing. Martha is in the kitchen. She's taking care of all the preparations. Martha has the gift of hospitality. She wants to make sure everything is right. Lazarus is Jesus' friend. They're talking with other people, having a conversation around the table. Um, Probably in the first century, it was just men in there. and Mary. Well, Mary was being Mary. <laughs> you never knew what Mary was going to do. And sure enough, Mary shows up with a pint of uh, scented oil that was very expensive. And she broke open the top. And she's walked into where all these men are talking. She breaks, doesn't say anything, just breaks it open, pours it on Jesus' feet, lets her hair down, and, and rubs Jesus' feet and, and an anointing of oil on his feet. And the whole thing is completely bizarre. It's a surprise to everybody in the room. No one's ever seen anything like it. Mary was grateful for what Jesus had done in her life, the least of which she had done was to bring her brother back to life. So one of the times we meet Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Mary and Martha send for Jesus because their brother is on his deathbed, he's not going to make it, Jesus if you come I'm sure you can help him, and Jesus delays for three days, it's a whole another long story about why he did that, he doesn't get there in time and Lazarus actually dies. By the time Jesus shows up, everybody's in full grieving mode. The mourning is going on the way they do it in the Middle East, and everybody's outside. And even Jesus is moved to tears. And then he goes inside, and he walks out with a living Lazarus. Now can you imagine if someone you cared about dearly, a spouse, a brother, a close friend, had died, and then suddenly they were living again, and the person who allowed them to do that was right there. He was your friend. He was Jesus. Can you imagine the sense of gratitude you would have for that great gift in your life that, that your brother had come back? And, and it wasn't the only thing that Jesus had done for them, but that's a pretty big thing. And so, Mary, as a way to express her gratitude and thankfulness for everything Jesus had done for her, took this expensive oil and poured it on the feet of Jesus. And then let down her hair, which by the way is not just a little detail that they threw in because wouldn't it be great if we knew what her hairstyle was that day? Letting down your hair in the first century, women wore their hair up. If you let down your hair, you only let down your hair with people that you trusted and that you loved because it was a symbol of vulnerability. And I will let down my hair. I'll let my hair down. And Jesus, because I trust him and I love him and I want to show and be vulnerable with him. And I will use my hair as the towel to wipe the oil that I poured on his feet." Everyone was grateful, but Mary couldn't control herself. She had this extravagant display, which actually takes us to our Old Testament lesson, chapter 43 of the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and reinforcements together, and and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. I am doing a new thing, God says. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Now, without a context, that doesn't make much sense to you, but... The people of Israel are once again held in captivity. A foreign power has overrun Israel and taken them away, out of their homeland, out of Jerusalem, out of the holy city, away from where they thought that God was. Took them away and kept them in captivity. And the first thing that Isaiah says is, you know, this isn't the first time this happened to this nation. Now let's think back. He said, um, you, were, you were held captive in, in Egypt for over 400 years. And remember, he says, that I, that I delivered you. That, that you escaped Egypt. And as you went, Pharaoh finally came to a sense and said, Hey, my slaves, my workforce are escaping. I'm going to go get them. So he sent his army after them. And when they got to the Red Sea, they thought they were blocked in there would be no escape. But God provided a way, right? He parted the Red Sea. The Israelites went across. Pharaoh's army tried to follow. And they were swallowed up in the ocean and God's people set free. Remember, you're only a nation today because of what I did in the past. But because of what I did in the past, you can count on me to do something in your future as well. I know you feel like there's no hope in your situation right now. You're in this foreign country and, and you don't think that there's a chance for you to be delivered, but, but there is a great chance that you can be delivered. In fact, I'm going to do a new thing, that's an old thing. I I did that once, that's an old thing. I'm going to do something completely new for you this time. I'm going to deliver you in a way that you could never imagine. And so Isaiah writes that the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. In other words, the animals understand that I'm the one who provides for them. They're alive because of me, I've given them water in the wasteland to give a drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. The people of Israel are in a wasteland, the poet writes, but God is going to give them water. He's going to give them a drink. He's going to bring them home. And to top it off, he's not going to do what they expect to do. The last time I delivered you, You went by yourselves and Moses led you out and brought you out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. I've done that once. This time I'm going to do a new thing. Do you know what God was going to do? He was going to deliver the people of Israel out of their captivity through a foreign king. Not an Israelite. Not a Jew. But Cyrus was going to deliver them and let the people go back. Can you imagine... God was going to use a foreign king to deliver his people? Who would ever think it? And why? Isn't that a little extravagant? Isn't that a little over the top? Isn't there someone who has our own nationality and ethnic background? Couldn't they deliver us? These are the people I formed for myself, God said, so that they can proclaim my praise. ever wonder why God formed people? We were formed to worship God and to hold nothing back in our expression of our love. Our expression to God should be extremely extravagant, a little bit like pouring out expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, the kind of expression that that is simply a response to the love that he's shown to us. And Mary's gift to Jesus was expensive, right? I mean, we're told right there in the story, Jesus said that this pint of, of, of scented oil which was really set aside for burial, which is a whole other foreshadowing of what's in Jesus' future, right? This this pint of oil was worth a year's wages. How many of us have something that's a possession of ours that is worth a year's wages? I mean, we may have homes that are worth a year's wages, and if they're paid off, which is maybe not all of us, then that would be the only thing that we might have that's worth a year's wages. Would you be willing to give your home up to say, I love Jesus, here's my home, you can have it? Probably not. It's that kind of extravagant expression that Mary gave to Jesus to say, I love you. I mean, it's a little bit bit like building a church that takes 140 uh, years to build at $29 million a year. That's extravagance. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's extremely over-the-top Why would you spend that kind of money on it? Wouldn't it be a waste of money? Well, that's not the first time that question's been asked. That was the point of view that Judas had. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. I mean, there's poor people all over Jerusalem standing on the street corners begging for the next day's meal. Why didn't we take the money from this perfume and give it to them? And in spite of what, you know, John writes as an editorial comment, you know, predicting that probably what Judas would have done was take money out of the bag, which he was known for doing, the sentiment that Judas displays is a sentiment that we often have. I get it, right? I mean, why were we spending $29 million a year on building a basilica when all these people in Spain could be fed with $29 million a year? It makes no sense to me. And we ask those questions all the time. And there are churches who philosophically believe that you shouldn't spend any money on a building. Apparently we're not one of them, but there's others. You could take money that you spend on building a building and you could feed. You know how many people you could feed with that? How many poor people you could help? I mean, it's a legitimate question. I get it. But I've also found that extravagance is kind of a matter of relativity, right? For those who think that the Sagrada Familia is extravagant, there's lots of other people who must not think it is or they wouldn't keep building it. Every year, they keep going. For some people, if you're going to go somewhere, you get on a plane and you fly. For a lot of other people, that's just too extravagant. They're not doing, if you've got to fly, they're not going because they're not going to spend that kind of money. Some people don't know how to go any other way. One person's extravagance is another person's kind of normalcy. I, I under, I, spring break's coming up, right? Local schools, uh, private and public are going to have spring break soon. And some people, I understand, are going to go to warmer climates during that week. What's up with that? I mean, it's 65 here and rainy. It's beautiful. Some people will go to Florida, you know, and others will kind of go, oh, man, we're not doing that. That's just way too expensive. That's too much of an extravagance. I can't believe that people do that. But for some people, going to Florida is just kind of like what you do. I mean, grandpa and grandma got a free condo. What else are you doing? See, one extravagance is all about relativity. What's normal for some people is extravagant for others. For some people, they think golfing is an extravagant expense. For others, it's an addiction. And Jesus' response is that you're going to have the poor among you always, but you're not always going to have me. I mean, is Jesus really saying here that we should just ignore the poor because there's nothing we could do about it anyway? Is he saying that we should never spend any time or money at my brother's kitchen helping out the people who live in poverty on the west side of Chicago? Is he really saying that, you know, all of our efforts are wasted? Absolutely not. I mean, every passage of Scripture has a context. The context is all of Scripture. God has a special place in his heart and concern for those who are poor and orphaned and widowed. But at the same time, he's saying, it's not either or. Either you do extravagance, or you don't. Either the poor will be with you always, so you don't do anything. Or you try to do something. We'll probably never eradicate poverty, but you can come alongside of people who are poor and give some kind of help. But at the same time, we can also have extravagant expressions of our love for God. The two don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can do both, Jesus said. And by the way, I'm not going to be here that much longer. So I'll take the extravagance now. In fact, what Mary is really doing, and you don't understand this, but you'll understand it later, she's anointing me for my burial with this extravagant display of love because I'm going to give you an extravagant display of love. Some people love to give extravagant displays of worship every Sunday when they're here, right? You know? How many of you were here last week? Last week we had the Elam praise team here. They worshiped with us. Now they know how to give extravagant displays. They do not care about what you think about them. They will dance. They will sing. They will clap. Not always in time or in rhythm or on key. But they don't care. They're just saying, God, I love you. God, I love you. And they energized our congregation because they said, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to care about how you sound or look. And I'm going amen to that. Extravagant expressions of love for God. It's the kind of thing that is generated from within. And you do crazy stuff when you're in love, right? I mean, we can all think of things that we've done that don't make any sense whatsoever because we're in love. Um, I was a year ahead of Becky at Hope, and um, when I graduated, I got a job teaching uh, school and coaching football and basketball in Eaton Rapids, which is uh, just south of Lansing, about two and a half hours east of Holland, which is not in the middle of nowhere, but you can see it from there. And, um, and I, you know, i teach all week long, and I'd coach football. And on Friday nights, I would never get to go to our varsity games because I was out scouting another team. I went to all sorts of places on the east side of the state that I'd never been before, exotic places and dangerous places, to scout other schools. And I'd come back with a scouting report about 10 to 10.30 on a Friday night, and I'd sit in the school office, and I would write out the whole scouting report and get it all completed and leave it in the varsity coaches. Uh, locker, and then I would jump on the road to go to Holland about one thirty or two in the morning. I'd get there about three thirty or four, and I'd sleep on the living room floor of Becky's apartment. What was I thinking about? Right? I mean, now now that I'm a little bit older, I look back and go, couldn't I have just slept in my own bed and got up about five or six and driven to Holland and still been there long before Becky would have ever seen the light of day? The the answer is I wasn't thinking. I was crazy in love. It didn't make any difference. I would do anything to get there. And this is the kind of thing that that we can give to the Lord as well. And what would be the motivation for that? Well, Paul gives us a motivation. It's right up here in Romans chapter uh, 5. And I'm going to read the white part, but I want you to read the yellow part if you would. You see, at just the right time, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Together. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Anybody here not a sinner? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His extravagant gift on the cross. And Jesus taught that he wanted to give us a new command. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. How do you love God? How do you demonstrate your love for God? How do you give this extravagance to God? You love one another. You love one another. You do loving things for other people. And you don't hold back, but you're extravagant, right? I think probably one of the things that we can be most extravagant with in the holidays is our time. Oh, I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time. Well, it would be an extravagant display of love if we would give our time to somebody else. Or, or to give somebody who's a loner attention. You know, when the service is over and you go out in the narthex and everybody's having bad church coffee and uh, there's all sorts of conversations going, have you ever noticed the people standing in the corner all by themselves? Wouldn't it be an extravagant expression of love to go over and talk to that person? or to give someone the gift of of really listening to them, to sitting down and really listening to them. So we baptized five babies this morning, and I was thinking about baptism and parenthood and dedicating kids to Christ. And I'm remembering that there's probably, I don't know how many people, you have to know yourselves, how many people in this room who never heard one parent or the other in their household ever utter the phrase, I love you. For whatever reason, sometimes we just have a hard time uttering the phrase, I love you. And when someone who has never told you that they love you utters that phrase, it is the most extravagant gift you'll ever receive. It's an exchange, you see. God initiates the exchange by giving us the greatest gift we could ever get. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Little babies were baptized today. You want to give them up? It's an extravagant gift. And our response is to love other people. I mean, the love of God, John Ortberg calls a love beyond reason. It makes no sense whatsoever. It is a love you cannot rationalize that kind of love. And Francis Cham simply calls it crazy love. It's just crazy. It makes no sense at all. It's absolutely nuts. It's crazy love. (laughs) And I say give me more of the crazy love. And let me respond with extravagant love. Let's pray together. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Makes no sense. It's beyond reason. It's crazy. But we are so grateful for your gift of unconditional love for all of us. For those of us who have known you for a long time. And those of us who might not know you at all. We know you love us. And so, O oh Lord, help us in some way, shape, or form to return your love by loving one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, oftentimes on Sunday morning, um, Greg and I will use a particular phrase to um, introduce the offering. And uh, it's a phrase that most of you aren't listening to because you're, hopefully you're grabbing for your checkbooks in your wallet, but... We, we often say, let us be as extravagant in our expressions of love through our tithes and offerings as God has been extravagant in his love for us. It's not just something that we made up in our office one day, it's right out of the story, right? In the story of Scripture. God gave everything for us, and so let us return to him a portion of our extravagant expressions of love to him as well. Let us continue to worship through our tithes and offerings.